Welcome to Sojourner True. Thank you for staying with us. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. Today, the nation's largest black migrant advocacy organization is pressing the Biden administration to extend temporary protected status, that's TPS, for refugees, migrants from black majority countries as they are now being denied. Among countries impacted are the Cameroon and Haiti. This, as the Biden administration announced the United States will accept 100,000 refugees from the Ukraine, and also the administration announced large increases in funding for ICE, or immigration control, and homeland security. The administration also announced it is lifting Title 42 controls at the border, a measure that was put in place during the Trump administration that allowed deportations without due process as part of the COVID pandemic border measures. Our guest is Nana Jumphy, Executive Director of Black Alliance for Just Immigration. Also, today is the birthday of the late Cesar Chavez. We share with you his words about the boycotts uh, led by the Farm Workers Union, as well as the organizing he was involved in with Black and Indigenous campaigners. For our weekly Earth Watch, we speak with Zach Porter with Standing Trees. We discuss the importance of wild forests and their importance to our health and to the environment. We live in a global world. We're all interrelated. So on Sojourner Truth, we work to bring directly to you news and views on local, national, and international policies and stories that affect us all. And we draw out how those of us most impacted, women, communities of color, and other communities are responding. We also discuss the interrelationship between art and politics. Now for our news headlines. For Pacifica Radio, I'm Eileen Alfandari. A convoy of buses headed to the battered port city of Mariupol in another attempt to evacuate the city's civilian population. After the Russian military agreed to a limited ceasefire in the area, the Red Cross said its teams were traveling to Mariupol with relief and medical supplies and hoped to help pull civilians out of the city on Friday. Previous attempts at establishing a similar humanitarian corridor have fallen apart. Meantime, Russia pressed its attacks in several parts of Ukraine ahead of a planned new round of talks tomorrow aimed at ending the fighting. There seemed little faith the two sides would resolve the conflict soon, particularly after the Russian military's about-face and its most recent attacks. Russia had promised during talks in Istanbul this week it would de-escalate operations near Kiev and Chernihiv, saying it wanted to increase mutual trust and create conditions for further negotiations. But soon after, Ukrainian officials reported Russian shells were again hitting homes, stores, libraries, and other civilian sites in or near those areas. A British intelligence chief says demoralized Russian soldiers in Ukraine are refusing to carry out orders, sabotaging their own equipment, and accidentally shot down their own aircraft. Ollie Barrett reports. The head of GCHQ intelligence agency believes Vladimir Putin's advisers are too afraid to tell him the truth about his invasion of Ukraine. Sir Jeremy Fleming, one of Britain's most senior spies, has made a rare speech in Australia. We've seen Russian soldiers, short of weapons and morale, refusing to carry out orders, 
sabotaging their own equipment, and even accidentally shooting down their own aircraft. It's clear he's misjudged the resistance of the Ukrainian people. He underestimated the strength of the coalition his actions would galvanize. From Feature Story News in Riga, I'm Oli Barrett. The Biden administration is expected to end the Title 42 asylum limits at the U.S.-Mexico border that were put in place by the Trump administration. Trump officials cited health concerns that immigrants infected with COVID might spread the disease to the U.S. Immigrants' rights groups and many Democrats call those health arguments a deceptive excuse to keep out migrants seeking asylum. They've been urging the Biden administration to reverse application of the Trump rule. Reports say Biden will do so by May 23rd. That may lead to a surge of migrants, some of whom have waited for years to present their cases for asylum. Maine Senator Susan Collins says she will vote to confirm Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson to the U.S. Supreme Court, giving Democrats at least one Republican vote. Collins met with Jackson a second time this week after four days of hearings last week. Collins said Jackson possesses the experience, qualifications, and integrity to serve as an associate justice on the Supreme Court. We had an in-depth discussion of many of the cases that were brought up at the hearings, and she explained in more detail her careful, thoughtful reasoning. I didn't always agree with the results that she came up with, but I had no doubt that she applies a very careful approach to the facts of a case uh, when she is judging. It's not clear whether any other Republican senator will join Collins. Democrats are still hoping to persuade Alaska's Lisa Murkowski or Utah's Mitt Romney. Romney met with Jackson on Tuesday. He said afterwards she was intelligent, capable, and charming, but he probably won't decide whether to support her until the day of the confirmation vote. Romney voted against Jackson when she was confirmed to the Court of Appeals. Israeli forces raided a refugee camp in Janine in the occupied West Bank, setting off a gun battle. The Palestinian Health Ministry says two Palestinians were killed, including a 17-year-old, and another 15 were wounded in the fighting. The Israeli military said one of its soldiers was wounded. The raid came two days after a Palestinian from a village near Janine shot and killed five people in central Israel. The Janine refugee camp was the scene of one of the deadliest battles of the second Palestinian Intifada in 2002. President Joe Biden called on Congress to pass billions of dollars in additional funding to fight the COVID-19 pandemic. He warned that without funding, the administration will run out of money for therapies to treat people sick with COVID for testing and vaccines. Congress has to provide the funding America needs to continue to fight COVID-19. We're already seeing the consequences of congressional inaction. The monoclonal antibody, take monoclonal antibodies, for example. They've helped save lives. This isn't partisan. It's medicine. We can't wait until we find ourselves in the midst of another surge to act. It'll be too late. And we also need this this funding to continue our efforts to vaccinate the world. After his remarks, Biden received his second booster of the Pfizer vaccine. I'm Eileen Alfandari for Pacifica Radio. And this is Margaret Prescott. 
host of Sojourner Truth. And uh, today we're going to start our show off with what is happening um, at the border. The United States is welcoming up to 100,000 Ukrainian refugees fleeing uh, the Russian invasion. And the Biden administration has also begun preparations for lifting Title 42, which are the U.S. border controls imposed by the Trump administration in 2020 during the COVID-19 pandemic that allowed authorities to deport asylum seekers without due process or without reviewing their claims. Title 42 expulsions are removals by the U.S. government of people who have recently been in a country where a communicable disease was present. And the U.S. Customs and Border Protection, they've carried out over 1.7 million expulsions over the past two years. By the way, the majority of those happened during the Biden administration, although um, Title 42 was put in place during the Trump administration. Um, On the other hand, you have the nation's largest black Immigrant Advocacy Organization, or BAJI, pressing the Biden administration to extend temporary protected status. Because right now, uh, black migrants, black refugees who are fleeing um, war, instability, uh, violence, are being uh, denied. Countries impacted include the Cameroon and Haiti. Let us go to a clip now on from CNN, where Christiane Amanpour is uh, speaking with uh, the executive director of the People's Justice Center. The existence of the asylum seeker on the southern border is not something that's new, and neither is the really um, targeted enforcement against particularly black immigrants and particularly Haitians uh, in our history. It's just for the first time, I think we're actually seeing it um, live um, in the news. And, and the images that we're seeing are shocking, but I don't think we should discount the fact that um, the, the targeted enforcement against the black immigrant on our southern border has been happening for some time. Well, let me play this by the uh, Homeland Security Secretary um, with, with regard to what you just said to see if what he promises you think has a chance of happening. Let's just play this. Uh, one cannot weaponize a horse uh, to aggressively attack a child, that is unacceptable. That is not what our policies and our training require. Please understand, let me be quite clear, um, that is not acceptable. We will not tolerate mistreatment. And we will address it with full force based on the facts that we learn. So major promises from very senior Americans right now about this. Do you think they will have a proper investigation? And, and how will they not tolerate? What will be the outcome of this, do you think? We've, you know, when the kids were put in cages, we've seen all this terrible stuff for way too long now. What do you hope will be the outcome of any investigation? Well, I do welcome the comments of the secretary. I think that an investigation is absolutely necessary. Um, but I will say that an investigation might not be enough. We've had children die in our border patrol stations. This has been ongoing issues with U.S. uh, uh, Customs and Border Protection in the United States, and it just seems to not go away. We need more than investigations right now. We need action, and we need immediate action. And I think that 
what would live up to the secretary's words is not only uh, a full force investigation now, but the immediate response, humanitarian response um, of sending people to the United States southern border right now to this Del Rio region and addressing the humanitarian concerns of the asylum seekers on the border. And, and what does that mean? That means permitting full and fair access to our asylum system. It means not expelling uh, Haitian migrants that are on the United States border right now because they have a legitimate and legal right to seek asylum. And it means stopping the removal of Haiti while we figure out what's happening. Okay, this is Margaret Prescott and having a few technical difficulties this morning. Um, but I'd like to welcome our guest, Nana Jumpy, attorney, consultant, educator, activist, executive director of Black Alliance for Just Immigration, and the president of the National Conference of Black Lawyers. Nana, welcome back. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Good to be here. Okay. So, Nana, give us your assessment about what's going on here, because a few things have happened recently. One, uh, the Biden administration has increased the, the budget, basically, for uh, immigration controls and, and homeland security. Um, he has also extended, um, uh, you know, 100,000 uh, Ukrainians, laid out the welcome mat, and uh, rightly, people fleeing war uh, should be able to get uh, some uh, extended protected uh, status and be allowed into the country. Uh, but when you contrast that, Baji, with, what, with what's happening with some other uh, migrants, some other refugees, you have a different story, Nana. Absolutely. I mean, there's there's a couple of pieces to grab onto here. One of the pieces has to do with what's happening at the border and the alleged, uh, you know, winding down of Title 42. We know that Title 42 is unlawful. It's been unlawful. At the time that 44 and a half put Title 42 into place, even then-candidate Joe Biden, you know, then-candidate Kamala Harris, everyone was talking about how it was clearly a racist policy that was not rooted in science, but rooted in white supremacy. Mysteriously, when um, President Biden became the president, uh, this administration suddenly decided that, no, actually, Title 42 was totally sound. Um, but it's not sound. It is a fake, you know, it's completely made up. Uh, uh, policy that targets disproportionately black migrants and creates a situation in which the United States is violating its own asylum laws as well as international law, and it should be ended immediately, saying that you're going to end the torture in May as opposed to ending it right now is preposterous. And Baji and Haitian Bridge Alliance and DocuBlack Act, other organizations were continued to push and to con connect with uh, national civil rights organizations such as the National Urban League, Advancement Project, National Office, to call for the end of Title 42. Um, we see that Title 42 has uh, is expelling black people at disproportionate and really high rates. I mean, 20, over 20,000 Haitians have been expelled under t Title 42 since Del Rio. There was 2,000 before and 20,000 plus afterwards. And then we hear about Ukrainians coming to the border and being allowed into the country obviously disproportionate there. And then when you talk about the removals, I mean, as soon, uh, within a week of the war um, in Ukraine, the Biden administration decided to give you, grant Ukrainians um, temporary protective status 
and, you know, not, you decide not to um, remove or deport Ukrainians out of this country. And yet, even with Haitian TPS, Haitians are being deported out of this country. And you have places like Cameroon, who have been fighting for years now to be able to get temporary protective status, apparently leapfrogged um, over by Ukraine. Right. And, you know, Nana, if you look at it, you also see that there are some countries that uh, the United States is, for some reason, wants to punish, um, like uh, Venezuela, like Cuba, where you have, you know, immigrants from those countries uh, having a much easier time uh, getting in and a, a kind of a welcome mat being rolled out to them as well. But if you look at the situation in, in Haiti, um, you, you know, you have a problem now um, with not only the extreme poverty, but extreme violence. Uh, happening in the country, uh, much of it as a result of U.S. Um, domestic and economic policy, uh, frankly, that has gone on and, and destabilization that has gone on in that country uh, for so long. But yet, as you say, you have so many Haitian uh, migrants uh, being deported, and you also see an increase now of boat people so-named boat people uh, from Haiti uh, trying to get in. Just recently, some of them were stranded um, for three days, apparently, waiting for rescue on a Puerto Rican island. So, uh, Nana, we know because we cover it here on Sojourner Truth, what's happening on the ground in Haiti, but a lot of folks don't know what the situation is for some of the countries on the ground on the continent of Africa, um, that is basically forcing people to flee. You know, Nana, I'm a, a, an immigrant myself, I'm a, you know, and a lot of us would frankly prefer to be in our home countries if it weren't for poverty, if it weren't for violence and, uh, you know, lack of opportunities, uh, history of colonialism and a lot more. Nana Jumpy. Yeah, I mean, migration, for, especially for black folks, is a, is a resilient strategy. It is not just a survival strategy, but a resilient strategy. It is, it is something that people are doing so that they can thrive, right, so they can escape oppression and so that they can thrive. And, you know, I think of the Cameroon, and we just recently, Baji um, penned a letter requesting a meeting with Ambassador Susan Rice, joined in that request by uh, African Communities Together, Undocu Black Network, the Cameroonian Advocacy Network, and Haitian Bridge Alliance, asking for a meeting to talk about Cameroonian TPS and to find out why you have a country that has armed conflict, that has seven different front lines, and that the United States, when you look at the budget that they just passed in 2022, you know, that budget they put in, is actually giving arms, you know, contributing to the conflict in Cameroon by backing a side. So they know what's going on. They're a part of what's going on. And yet, three years in, we still are not able to get TPS for Cameroon. We're being told, oh, the Cameroonians should find some part of the country where they can avoid the conflict. You're not saying that to Ukraine. The whole country of Ukraine is not on fire. You're not telling the Ukrainians to go find some corner where they can hide and be okay. So why are you saying that to the Cameroonians? Why are you saying that to the Mauritanians, that, oh, yes, black people are enslaved, but not all black people are enslaved? Well, it's chattel slavery in the United States. All black people were not enslaved. What does that mean? How is that okay? 
And so these are the questions that we're going to be asking, hopefully, um, getting this meeting with the administration that we continue to ask, that we've been asking, um, and we're continuing to push and to press for all people. I mean, Margaret, we are consistently saying we're not upset about the Ukrainians getting what they're getting or the Afghans getting what they're getting, and I'm tired of saying that. We don't have to say that. Black people have made it clear that we want justice, equality, liberation for everyone. We don't have to keep repeating that we're not denying other people. We need other people to repeat that what, you know, that they want liberation for black people. Yeah, you know what? And Nana, the other thing is, is that when I do cover immigration and with a specific focus on black immigration, then the question that comes up, well, what about all the other immigrants? Are you saying that you know, black immigrants somehow, you know, are a special case as opposed to other immigrants. So what about brown immigrants? I mean, it's the same argument that you're making about us uh, saying that, of course, the welcome mat should be rolled out uh, for Ukrainians. But tell us, too, Nana, because that's a story I know you have talked about when you've been on this show before, but a lot of people are not still not aware of the level of racism, anti-black racism, um, for black immigrants who are stuck at the border, not able to come into uh, the United States, who may be stuck in Mexico, but also the journey through Latin America and Central America. That's, that's what a lot of folks don't want to talk about, but it's also a reality. Nana. Absolutely. And we just came from Tapachula. Uh, myself, our director of policy and advocacy, and then our documentarian, we were just in Tapachula last week, just came back on Sunday, and, you know, interviewed folks who have made that really treacherous journey. And here's what I can tell you. It's a journey of death. What is very clear now is that for black migrants, that journey from Colombia, from Panama, into across Central America, into Mexico is a journey of death in which people, there was no one who talked about not seeing dozens of people die with their own eyes. There was no one who did not talk about seeing black women raped at gunpoint. There's no one who didn't talk about seeing children drown in rivers. No one didn't talk about stepping over dead bodies. No one didn't talk about having to run and hide from the Panamanian police, immigration, you know, all the way up through the different countries. Only, you know, so I call it like the choking corridor where they choke out black migrants. And if you survive and you make it into Mexico, this is where they make the final attempt at suffocation. The physical death, spiritual, emotional, mental death, cultural death, Margaret, they don't let them get together to clap and sing. They are not to do, you know, to have church together. They are not to do the basics, language access, completely not there, especially for African migrants, many of whom do not speak Spanish, have not, unlike some of the Haitians, lived in any part of South America, and therefore have no way to let people know I've been raped, have no way to talk about the violence that they've experienced. Immigration officials robbing them of whatever monies they have, tearing up their immigration documents. Some of these people suffered all of that, went to Del Rio, and then were expelled back to Cameroon, to Haiti, to the countries that they had taken such effort to flee, thinking that they were coming to safety. It's really a tragic, 
tragic, tragic um, situation and one that is all the way across people, herds of immigration officials from Panama all the way through to Mexico. It's the United States telling us to do this. This is Biden telling us to do this. This is what these migrants were told. Yeah, and Nana jumped to me what you are describing, um, uh, bad, the, the bad conditions that you are just described, the discrimination. But this is a global issue, isn't it? Because when you look yeah. at um, migrants who are fleeing the continent, who are fleeing Africa, uh, some of whom go through Libya, trying to go through the Mediterranean, et cetera, you know, there are hundreds, if not thousands, of people who drown, countries that are refusing to uh, accept uh, them in, some of these same countries that now have the welcome mat rolled out, and rightly so, as you say, rolled out for, for Ukrainians. But if you're black, you know, it's still stay back. And even um, black people trying to get out of the Ukraine have run into issues where they were either stopped or if they got into uh, Poland being abused and, and beat up, that's not all, but um, enough of them to, to really draw attention and to get a little, not much, a little uh, media coverage. So uh, this seems to be a, a, a worldwide problem, but the United States uh, very much being at the front lines also of all of this, uh, Nana. Absolutely. And the United States has just exported so much of its anti-black policy when it comes to immigration. And that's not to say that these countries, when we're talking about Europe, whether we're talking about South America, Mexico, Central America, whether we're talking about the so-called Middle East, that's not to say these countries don't have their own anti-blackness. Clearly they do. The black people that are from those countries are suffering, right, the anti-blackness there. But there's a certain type of way that the anti-blackness and white supremacy shows up in the United States. This, this combination with carcerality, right, with um, handcuffs, with cages, um, with this type of violence that is particular in its, you know, U.S.ian flavor. And that is definitely being spread all over the world. Um, Baji is in these rooms, uh, you know, global spaces with the Global Forum on Migration and Development, for example, really being given the microphone, the platform, to be able to talk about it and, and what is happening across the globe. And we're hearing back from black folks all over the globe, black migrants, that, yes, this is the experience that they're having, and people are fearing, feeling more open to be full-throated about the type of racism um, and anti-black discrimination that they're experiencing. Because, you know, we're afraid to do so. People don't want to be deported. They don't want to make too much noise. They're trying to figure out how to navigate in spite of discrimination, whether that's in the United States or any other part of the world where we see this anti-blackness rearing its head with respect to migrants. Yeah, and just uh, finally, two things here, uh, Nana. One is that, you know, there is an ongoing conversation, a black-brown conversation going on. And just as we are, it's important for us to build that unity because there are so many forces that want to divide black and brown people. We do want to build that unity. On the other hand, uh, in, you know, in the attempt to build that unity, a lot of people don't want to talk about or even admit that there is this anti-black racism that goes on. 
even in countries that are majority brown countries, if you know what I mean. I just want you to uh, say uh, just a little bit about that. And also, for people who want to support your work, Nana, support the work of uh, Baji and along with all of the other organizations, what should they do, Nana? So we're talking, you know, it's really an important point as where you're talking about how do we have this solidarity and what does it really mean. And it, with Baja, we talk about being in transformative relationship as opposed to transactional relationship, meaning we want to work and we continue to work with brown folks on the issues that we need to work with, uh, you know, in terms of fighting back against white supremacy, economic oppression, um, gender issues, LGBTQ issues, etc. And at the same time, it's not just like you do me, I do you. That's not what it's supposed to be based on. It's based on an effort to create a new world. And what that means is that we're going to have to be willing to have the hard conversations, the courageous conversations about what is going on in Central America, what's going on in South America, what's going on in Mexico with respect to anti-black discrimination, and what can we do to address it together instead of trying to pretend. I mean, when we talk about what's happening in Mexico, unfortunately, we find people who, you know, want to defend the Mexican government and want us to stop talking about it and, you know, act like it's not happening. We cannot do that. And that's not the correct approach. The correct approach is for us to come together and to address that issue together with Mexico and with the United States, the Organization of American uh, States, etc., so that we can bring these issues to an end. And same within our immigration rights movement. We have to be able to have these conversations so that we can address anti-blackness together because there's no way that black people are not going to be free, that we are going to be enslaved, that we're going to be oppressed, and brown people are going to be free. No one is leapfrogging over us into the land of milk and honey. And so it's to everyone's benefit, even if you don't care about black people, to make sure that black people are good if you want to be good. In terms of following us, go ahead. Mm-hmm. No, no, I was just going to ask if there's a website or what people can do. Absolutely. So you can go to our website at www.baji.org. Baji spelled B-A-J-I, Baji.org. You can follow us at Baji Tweet on Twitter and at InstaBaji on Instagram. And, you know, join up with our, our listserv, pay attention to our campaigns, join in this fight. All righty, Nana Jumpy, thank you so very much. And also thank you for sitting in when I can't, uh, hosting uh, Sojourner Truth. We always so appreciate that, and we know that Sojourner Truth is in good hands when it is in your hands. Thank you, Nana. Thank you so very much. Always humbled to do so. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. All righty. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. We're going to take a short station break now. And we have a special song today because today is the birthday of the late, great Cesar Chavez. Not have a day that was. He 
Alrighty, and that song, Stevie Wonder did it for Martin Luther King as he was pressing for a holiday, a national holiday for Martin Luther King. Today, we want to lift up and honor the memory of Cesar Chavez, whose birthday is today, the leader, founder of the great Farm Workers Union, working alongside Dolores Huerta. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. You can check out our Facebook. Just look for Sojourner Truth with Margaret Prescott, www.sotrueradio.org, our handle on Instagram and Twitter, at So True Radio. What we're going to do now, uh, coming up, uh, we have our Earth Minute. We also have our Earth Watch uh, today. But first, as we remember and lift up Cesar Chavez on his birthday, let us hear a, a clip, just a, a short piece of a fantastic speech he gave at uh, UCLA. Let's go to that clip now where he talks about the uh, the boycott uh, about after what happened after winning uh, the great boycott uh, strike and then a fight that they were involved in in Arizona. Let's hear the voice now of Cesar Chavez. I want to recommend to you and tell you in case you should not know that the great boycott is over and that and that grapes are really very healthy and very good for you. And that, and that if you, and if you, that if you eat grapes, you'll create more jobs for us, and that we need. But also, I have to admit that the growers were right and we were wrong when they accused us that if they used to say a few years back, today grapes what tomorrow, and they used to say that we'll boycott grapes today and tomorrow there'll be something else, and after tomorrow something else, and so not to disappoint them. We are boycotting lettuce, non-union lettuce. That that it's the it's the Western iceberg lettuce, the one that looks like lettuce, lettuce. <laughs> looks like a cabbage, and it's really bad these days. So if you don't see the black eagle, if you don't see the black eagle, don't take any chances. Don't eat it. Proposition 22 has only one reason for being. You see, when the strike started in Delano back in 1965, the employers were very sure that that strike would be broken as so many strikes have been broken in the last 70 or 80, 90 years. And they were right. They were right. Had it not been for the boycott, we'd still be uh, struggling to get the union built. When we left the fields to go on the boycott, the employers also went following us. And we went to the people of this country and we said in whichever way we could with leaflets, going to meetings, to students, to union meetings, to church meetings, and everywhere and anywhere that we have us, that they would have us and we told the people in America, help us, we need your help. And they responded. And the employers came right after us, but they went to the public in a little different way. They went through slick uh, political or slick paid advertisement and we beat them and after they after they found out that 
we could actually get people to boycott in this country, the only thing left for them to do was to come up with Proposition 22 that would essentially strip all those rights away from us and your rights to help us if it should be enacted. They took Proposition 22 right after we won the strike in Delano in July of 1970 and went to the halls of Congress in Washington and tried to peddle that piece of legislation and only one old tired senator took it on. Only one old tired senator accepted and became sort of their champion. And of course he was retired uh, year, in fact he was retired I think that same year. He used to be your senator. And when they found that this piece of legislation was laughed at and was rejected soundly in the halls of Congress, then the American Farm Bureau, some a collection of some extreme right-wing groups, which to this day we don't understand, we just don't understand why we are on the, on the number one list in their, in their uh, bad, bad list of people in this country. But anyway, and the National Right to Work Committee and assorted groups made a promise that they would go to every state in the country to have 22 uh, enacted through the state legislatures. And they've been to 37 states, and we've defeated them in every state except three. Kansas has Proposition 22 enacted as a law. So, is, so does Idaho, and so does Arizona. All three incidentally are right to work states. And so in Arizona we made up our minds that we're going to fight back the best way we could. And we told the governor in Arizona, Governor Williams, if you sign that piece of, of bias, unconstitutional, repressive legislation, we're going to fight you back. And we're going to do it in such a way you're not going to like it very well. We're going to recall you. And he laughed and the Two major newspapers in Arizona wrote articles making fun of the farm workers, and we started the work in early June of this year. We needed 103,000 signatures to recall him. We now have 112,000 signatures. When we went to Maricopa County, where Phoenix is situated, we talked to the black brothers and the Chicanos and the Indians and the white brothers who wanted to work with us and we said, we'd like to do something to get our program going. Can you help? And the suggestion that they made was that we register voters. And we did. Together with them, when we came into Phoenix, there were 13,000 more Republicans than Democrats. Right now, there are about 60,000 more Democrats than Republicans. And most of those... Most of those are the Chicanos and the blacks and the Indians in that area. And we went to every Indian reservation. Went to, the, we made a one-month trip in Arizona visiting the Indian reservations, the farm workers, all of the cities, all of the colleges, all the universities, everywhere and anywhere they would have us. But we went to Flagstaff right after July 4th and found out that there was a three-day fiesta powwow, they call it, where a lot, thousands and thousands of tourists come to see the Indians dance. And in this particular fiesta, powwow, some of the young Indians from the American 
Indian movement got up, took the mic away from the speaker and told the Indian brothers and sisters, do not denigrate your religion, do not dance. And they were arrested, there were seven of them, they were charged with crossing a state line to incite, to, to incite to riot. We went to the judge, a local judge was a Chicano, or at least, I think he just has a Chicano name, I'm sure he's not a Chicano. And I said, man, this is so, so ridiculous, how can you arrest those seven men? Because they, they took a mic away from the, from the speaker. I'm sure it could never be a, fenalty, uh, a felony, and it would be very difficult to conscrew taking a microphone away from, from someone as a misdemeanor. The most we could, we could uh, agree on would probably be some inconvenience. <laughs> but nevertheless, he was arrested, so we spoke to a rally of people out at the outskirts of town because no one would rent us a hall, and we just told the judge and the city fathers that if they, these guys were not released, or they, if those charges were not dropped, we were going to bring our friends from all over the country. And they believed it. And a few hours later, the charges were dropped to misdemeanor, and they were out on $50 fine. Again, the birthday of Cesar Chavez. That was the voice of Cesar Chavez. It's just incredible um, speech um, telling this, this story that he gave at UCLA. Today, Cesar Chavez Day. It is a holiday. There's a push for it to be really a national uh, holiday. It's formally recognized in Arizona and California, Washington, Utah, and Wisconsin. So that movement uh, continues. But we here on Sojourner Truth, we definitely recognize and, and lift up that great leader, the late, great Cesar Chavez. Uh, we are now going to go to our weekly Earth Minute, and waiting to speak with us for our weekly Earth Watch is Zach Porter. Stay with us. According to a global study comparing the performance of two forest restoration efforts published in the journal Science, researchers have found that native forests are more effective in climate mitigation than monoculture plantations. Unsurprisingly, native forests consistently outperformed monoculture tree plantations in carbon storage, preventing soil erosion, water provision, and biodiversity, despite their being persistently promoted as a solution to climate change. The study found that though tree plantations yielded more wood production, they provided fewer environmental benefits than restored native forests. The science is clear that the benefits of diverse native trees far outweigh the consequences of monoculture plantations, which threaten forests and communities and exacerbates the climate crisis rather than fixing it. For the Earth Minute and the Sojourner Truth Show, this is Teresa Church from Global Justice Ecology Project. All righty, our weekly Earth Minute there, and now directly on to our weekly Earth Watch, and we do partner with the Global Justice Ecology Project since 2009, actually, for our weekly Earth um, Minute, as well for our weekly Earth Watch segment. We want to thank them. I'd like to welcome our guest, Zach Porter, passionate wild forest advocate who has dedicated his professional life to making North America a wilder place. Born and raised in New England, Zach worked in uh, wildlands management and advocacy for nearly 15 years in Washington's North 
Cascades and the northern Rockies of Montana and Idaho before he and his family moved to Vermont in 2018. Today, uh, Zach Porter is grateful for the opportunity to serve as the executive director of Standing Trees, an organization he co-founded in 2020 to protect and restore forests on New England's public lands. Uh, Zach, thank you for your work and thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor and a pleasure. Okay, so Zach, um, if our listeners didn't get a hint from our weekly Earth Minute, tell us the difference between what you would call, uh, you know, a wild forest. What what is a wild forest as opposed to another type of forest, Zach? Yeah, thank you. You know, we use a, a lot of terms that I think get get confusing when talking about forests. Um, even the term old-growth forest, I think, is confusing and misleading. Um, an old-growth forest or a wild forest, um, what we are talking about here are simply natural forests. So when, when at Standing Trees we speak of our work to protect and restore or recover the old-growth forests uh, of, of our region, New England, um, what we're talking about is restoring natural forests. And the same could be said for work to uh, restore wild forests or protect wild forests anywhere across the globe. Um, so that's what we mean when we, when we say wild forests. Right, and uh, uh, distinct from the monoculture, the, the tree plantations, that some people, um, you know, do call forests, right, the ones who are, are putting those forward. So uh, tell us then about uh, the work of Standing Trees. Why did you found that organization, and what are you doing, what are you aiming to do? Yeah, you know, um, well, like you just said, and, and, and as was mentioned in, in the break just before I came on, um, native forests, you know, our natural forests are far superior at uh, doing all the things that we need our forests to do so desperately in 2022. Um, you know, whether it's supporting our native biodiversity, uh, storing planet-warming carbon, producing the clean water that we rely on, the air that we breathe, um, there's nothing like a wild forest, an, a, an old forest, to produce those uh, what are called ecosystem services or natural goods and services, um, the life support systems of our planet. Um, and so Standing Trees is dedicated to uh, making sure that we manage uh, much more of our forested landscape um, in a way that, that maximizes all of these uh, you know, benefits that, that we need from our uh, forests in, in, in this climate-changed era. And we're focused on public lands because those are the lands that you and I have a say in. We are all co-owners of America's public lands, whether that's our state lands or our federal lands. We can all have a say in how these are managed. And we think in 2022 it's about time that we redefine the greatest good for the greatest number in the long run, which is the motto of uh, many of our public land managing agencies, especially the U.S. Forest Service. And so uh, right now, you know, with, with, I think, old forests having a bit of a renaissance, um, we've all been, you know, hearing about the value of old forests in books like uh, Suzanne Samard's Finding the Mother Tree, or maybe you've read uh, Robin Wall Kimmerer's Braiding Sweetgrass. So many are, are talking about the value of old forests, and we think the first place to get to work on recovering our old forests is on public lands. And so that is the mission of Standing Trees. And, and we're focused here in, in the Northeast, but 
our work is intertwined with work that's ongoing all across the U.S. Um, and so you can certainly learn more at standingtrees.org, and, and we want you to get involved. Right. And, and why do we have to worry about, uh, you know, public lands? I know a lot of people think, well, if it's public land, it's, it's protected. Nobody's really going to mess with it if it's the Bureau of uh, Land Management, et cetera. But that tends to vary, doesn't it? I mean, you know, what are some of the threats? to uh, public lands and to forests that are on public lands in particular, Zach? That's a fantastic question. And you are exactly right that I think for so many Americans, we have this perception that public lands are somehow protected and nothing could be further from the truth. Um, Today, only a small percentage of uh, public lands are actually protected from degrading logging and road building that fragment our habitat for native species that uh, remove car- you know carbon that we we really need to keep in the ground and in living and dead uh, biomass um, in our forests. Um, our, our public forests are managed still to this day as a commercial resource in many cases, and um, this just has to stop. Um, most of the wood products that we derive today. Um, are from private lands, and public forests have a different role that they should play in, in forest management. Um, we need to reduce our usage of wood products generally, but we can you know, really lean into that uh, on public lands. And so when you hear the words National Forests or Bureau of Land Management, um, these areas are not managed as, you know, what you might think of as national parks, for example, or, or you know, what are called wilderness areas. Um, most of our national forests, most of our Bureau of Land Management lands are managed for the production of, of, of commodities. Um, they're, they're, they're really uh, managed to benefit uh, corporate America, honestly, and not the taxpaying public. Um, we are managing our public lands uh, at cost to taxpayers uh, to provide resources to major corporations, timber companies, oil and gas corporations, mining companies. Um, and we are, you know, unfortunately... Uh, seeing our public land, uh, you know, heritage, our, our, our resources, lands that, of course, we are just stewarding uh, for future generations and which were, of course, uh, uh, you know, once uh, the lands of, of, of America's, uh, you know, incredible indigenous cultures from, from one, you know, one corner of the country to the other. Um, these are lands today that are being mismanaged uh, for, you know, private gain. And we need to change that. Public forests should be producing public goods in, in 2022. And so that's, again, the mission of Standing Trees and, fortunately, of a growing number of other organizations across the country. And so efforts to cut down our forests uh, to, you know, you know, we hear a lot about, you know, reducing fire danger. Uh, we hear a lot about, you know, uh, going in there and, and, and creating you know, uh, restoring our forests is this term that you'll hear a lot, you know, rest, habitat restoration. Well, you know, restoration for which species? Are they for the native species that, that once lived there? Are they for species that people most like to, to hunt, for example? Um, we need to be asking really good questions right now about what the goals are for public land management. And um, there's never been a more important time to rise up together and demand a paradigm shift in how we manage our public lands. So um, it's a great moment right now for for uh, people to to get engaged.
Right. So as the, the work then of, of Standing Trees, what does that uh, work look like? You co-founded uh, the, that organization, but give us a, a, a sense of some of the uh, work that you, you, you're doing to give us a sense of what does it mean to be, to support this organization, to be part of this organization. And uh, what do you see are some of the biggest threats now to the forest? You're working in the area of New England, uh, so specifically in the area that you're working in, uh, Zach Porter. Yeah, so um, there are huge logging projects uh, already ongoing and in the works on Forest Service lands, the Green Mountain National Forest and White Mountain National Forest in Vermont and New Hampshire, where we do a lot of our work. Um, there's 40,000, more than 40,000 acres of logging already approved for the near future and another uh, 10,000 acres to, or so that, that's in the works right now. Um, none of this is being done according to you know, uh, kind of the, the to, to, to mimic the ecology of, of, of our forest lands. This is really just driven by a desire to uh, produce wood products. And again, to kind of meet the, the, the desires of, of groups that want to see um, certain species benefited that honestly already exist in, in kind of unnatural abundance. And the equivalent in the Western United States is this misguided attempt to uh, log for fire risk reduction, which is completely, you know, uh, out, of, out of touch with the science on, on fire management, on forest management. The best thing we can do today is let our forests grow old. Um, New England is a carbon breadbasket, just like the forests of the Pacific Northwest. We have forests that will grow hundreds or thousands of years if we let them. And we can store many times more carbon than what's in our forests today if we simply let them grow old. And so Standing Trees is rallying the public uh, working through legal and other avenues to change the way that we manage forests. And I encourage people to go to climate-forest.org, uh, as well as to standingtrees.org, where they can learn about national, a national campaign right now to uh, protect mature and old-growth forests across the U.S. on federal public lands, again, lands that, that belong to each and every one of us, um, and also to get involved in stopping these terrible logging projects that are being proposed in places where they should least be going on, in our wildest lands, our roadless areas, and mature forests uh, like we have here across the Green and the White Mountain National Forest. So um, it's, it's, a, it's a really dire moment right now. We're kind of at a juncture where we can make a decision today to put our forests on a different path. And um, it won't happen unless we really rise up together. And uh, we're standing with the trees, and, and we hope, you know, your listeners will, will do the same. And, and if our chorus is loud enough, I really think that this is the moment where we can make change happen. Yeah, and just uh, finally a quick note, re-standing with, with trees. For um, residents in California who are in the south, um, specifically out in the Mojave Desert uh, area where you, there is a huge national park, uh, Joshua Tree National Park, there is a movement now to protect the Joshua Tree. We can't say in the desert communities it's not a forest per se, but they are um, things like the, the Joshua Tree and, and perhaps other um uh, trees uh, that grow in the desert that also uh, need protection. So I just, I know that's not your area, but I just wanted to uh, throw that out there. I think people could find information online 
about the movement to protect uh, the Joshua Tree. And actually, there's a move to um, name the Joshua Tree as an endangered species. So that's um, interesting. Uh, twist there in terms of protecting the the trees. Um, just uh, Zach Porter, thank you so much. We're gonna have to continue uh, this conversation. Just in about thirty seconds or so, tell us what about uh, GE trees, and is that a threat to natural forests? We know that there are some people that are trying to say, well, we want to save the American chestnut, and the way to do it is through GE trees. Any quick thought on that, Zach Porter? Yeah, thanks. You know, we don't support tinkering with uh, the biology of, of, of our native trees, and, um, you know, genetically engineered uh, trees don't belong um, in, our, in our wild forests. Uh, just as any genetically engineered species um, really don't belong in, in our native wild forests. And so, um, you know, what we know from the latest science is that we need to let our native biodiversity thrive. And that means finding the courage to be a little more humble and take a more precautionary approach to, uh, you know, the way we do uh, land management in this country than we have before. We need to be humble in the face of climate change. And, and that means uh, letting wild nature do what it does best. Um, so this is our moment to kind of step back, and, and, and I really hope that we can all get involved in this movement right now um, at the intersection of climate change and, and justice work for all living things. So, um, yeah, I, you know, this is uh, a right. really key opportunity right now. Okay, well, we are going to have to leave it there. We're really out of time, but Zach Porter, thank you for your work. And we certainly all want to stand with the trees. I'd like to thank all of today's guests. Today's show produced by me. That's Margaret Prescott. I'd like to thank our board op for today, Gary Baca. I'd like to thank Alicia Vargas, our assistant producer. Stay tuned for Democracy Now! Sojourner Truth. We'll be back tomorrow with our weekly roundtable. Our regular panelists will be there. You won't want to miss that. Thank you so much for listening. This is your host, Margaret Prescott, and you all please remember to stay well and safe.